Several weeks ago, I was in the United States, and one of the major news items while I was over there, alongside the Super Bowl and Super Tuesday, was the terrible devastation caused by winter storms in the state of Tennessee, about uh, 500 miles from where I was staying. I think it was even reported over here as well. What had started off as a blustery February day in the town of Jackson in Tennessee quickly turned into gale-force winds and eventually full-scale tornadoes that tossed cars up into the air, smashed buildings to pieces, and in the end claimed more than 50 lives. I imagine it must be a frightening experience to watch a gathering storm in those parts of the world and to wonder what destruction it may wreak before it exhausts its fury. Well, as we turn again to uh, the passage that was read so well for us earlier, we find ourselves watching a gathering storm of a different kind. It's a storm that centers on the person of Jesus. And by the time it has run its course, it will have claimed his life. The storm had been brewing for three years, in fact, since Jesus began his public ministry as he met persistent opposition from the religious leaders of Israel. Now, as he enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time to the adulation of crowds hailing him as the Messiah, the clashes with his enemies rapidly escalate, culminating, as we know, in his betrayal, execution at the hands of the Romans. Today, we focus on the first of those series of conflicts. And what I'd like to consider this morning is what they teach us about the enemies of God. The enemies of God. Many of the people who opposed Jesus thought that they were on God's side. That's how they presented themselves. But their attitudes and their actions revealed that they were really enemies of God. They were opposing God and his purposes. And on this Thinking Sunday... We all need to think carefully about this. Because it may be that some of us are enemies of God. And we've simply never realized it. And even if we are not, uh, even if we are basically in a right relationship with God through Jesus, it is still possible for God's people to live in ways that are actually opposed to God. It happens. So then, please do have your Bibles open at the passage as we consider together what I'm calling three marks of the enemies of God. Three marks of the enemies of God displayed in this passage. Defiling God's house, denying God's authority, and despising God's Son. Let's begin then with the first mark of the enemies of God, which we see in the final Four verses of chapter 19. Last Sunday evening, if you hear the evening service last Sunday, Peter Granger spoke about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey uh, with the crowds welcoming him and praising God. Any other public figure, I think, would probably have wanted to ride this wave of popularity for as long as possible by avoiding uh, thereafter rubbing anyone up the wrong way and spoiling it all. But what's the very next thing that Jesus does? He entered the temple area, Luke tells us, 
and began driving out those who were selling. And then he quotes from the Old Testament to justify his actions. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, it's helpful to understand a little bit of the cultural background here. The Jewish traditions of worship at that time required people to bring certain kinds of items as sacrifices. Animals, wine, oil, salt, and doves, these sorts of things. But rather than bringing their offerings with them all the way to Jerusalem as they travelled, which often wasn't practical, they would buy them when they arrived there in the city. What's more, it turned out that they couldn't use the common Roman money to buy them. They were required to use Hebrew shekels in accordance with the laws that were laid down in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So they had to actually exchange their money before they could attain the items that they needed for the sacrifices. These traders then would have been businessmen who exchanged money and sold the necessary sacrificial offerings. Now, in principle, there was nothing wrong with that. Uh, It was meeting a genuine need, as most businesses do. But Jesus could see that the whole enterprise had become so commercialized and exploitative that it was obscuring the proper focus of the temple, which was the worship of God. In particular, it it seems, reading between the lines, that the the greediest traders had moved their stalls into the the outer temple area, which was the only area where non-Jews were permitted to come in and pray to worship the God of Israel. And it would have been pretty difficult to cultivate an attitude of true worship in a place that sounded and smelled like a cattle auction. You can just imagine it. And Jesus was incensed by it. Nothing was more important to him than to honour God above all else. The temple was the place that God had promised to especially bless with his presence. The presence of God in the temple. It was the house of God. And those who defiled God's house and dishonoured God were the enemies of God. And so Jesus, with righteous indignation drives out the traders and purifies the temple. Now you may ask, what relevance does this have to us? What practical principles are we to take from it? Well, we have to think pretty carefully about how to apply this. I mean, uh, do these verses imply that we should run down to the lounge after the service and smash up the bookstore? Well, Uh, I'm not so sure. I don't think so. I think that would, in fact, be missing the point pretty badly. What we should learn, I think, from this incident is that worshipping God is a serious business. A serious business. In particular, when we gather together in one place to worship God, as we've done this morning, we need to take care that we really are honouring God with what we do and how we do it. We should ask Have we allowed elements to creep into our worship services that reflect our own priorities rather than God's priorities? Are there ways in which we have tried to take advantage of our participation in church for our own selfish benefits rather than focusing on what matters most, our relationship with the living God? We need to ask of everything that we do when we meet together, is it 
designed primarily to honour God. If not, throw it out. Well, that's one point of valid application, I think. But if we look at the, the broader teaching of the New Testament, we should be able to see, I think, an even more challenging point of application. You see, the temple of Jesus' day no longer exists. It was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So we might ask, what is the equivalent of God's temple today? Where do we find God's temple today? Is it our church building? The bricks and the mortar that uh, are all around us this morning? Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul would have thought. Not what he would have said. Look what he wrote to the Corinthian church in one of his letters, even before the Jewish temple had been destroyed. This is what he writes. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. God's temple is still the place that God has promised to specially bless with his presence. And the Bible teaches the incredible truth that God himself dwells within every Christian in the person of the Holy Spirit. You and I are God's temple today if we have been born again by the Spirit of God. And that means that we must take care not to defile God's house. Not to defile ourselves with practices that dishonour God. In the letter that he wrote, uh, Paul was particularly concerned that the Corinthians were involved in sexually immoral lifestyles that dishonoured God and his design for men and women. And it may be that some of us here this morning are defiling God's house in exactly that way. Or perhaps we're involved in other kinds of lifestyle that we know dishonour God. Attitudes and activities that defile our lives and our worship. If so, we need to understand that we're acting like enemies of God. And we need to cry out to Jesus to come and drive out those ungodly thoughts and desires to purify God's temple once again. Now that won't be any more pleasant for us than it was for those temple traders. But it has to be done if we're to get back into a right relationship with our Father. Well, Jesus' temple, uh, cleansing of the temple raised questions about how God should be honoured, and we've considered those. But it also raised deeper questions about the identity of Jesus himself. Who does this man think he is? By what authority does he presume to cleanse God's house on God's behalf? Who is he? The Jewish religious leaders who had opposed Jesus' whole ministry and tried repeatedly to discredit him just didn't like the implied answers to those questions one little bit. But the questions wouldn't go away. And in the next section of our passage, they decide that the best defense is a good offense. But in the process, they reveal a second mark of the enemies of God, denying God's authority. So look now at chapter 20 and verses 1 to 8. Jesus' Jesus' opponents wanted him dead. It was as simple as that. 
But they couldn't engineer that while Jesus was still enjoying the popularity of the crowds. Uh, ironically, fickle public opinion would swing their way in only a matter of days. But for now, their hands were tied. And so they came up instead with a plan to trap Jesus with his own words. An attempt to uh, trick Jesus into discrediting himself. The most uh, influential among them, the chief priests, the the teachers of the law, and the elders of the uh, Jewish community, or the hygienes, as we'd say here in Scotland, all of these men come to Jesus and put a direct question to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? The idea, you see, was to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus had repeatedly implied by uh, both his words and his actions that he had no less authority than God. But they wanted to force him to say so explicitly. On the one hand, if if Jesus denied that he had God's authority, uh, which they knew he wouldn't do for a minute, well, if he did that, that would be the end of his public ministry. He would be exposed as a fraud. But if Jesus came right out and claimed God's authority, that would be tantamount to blasphemy. How could the uneducated son of a Galilean carpenter make such an outrageous claim? That would be more than enough to convict him on the basis of Jewish blasphemy laws. Now it's important to see that this attempt to trap Jesus makes one crucial assumption that Jesus doesn't actually have the authority of God. That was their assumption. Despite all the evidence of Jesus' character, his teaching, his miracles, these enemies of his have made up their minds long ago. At this point, they weren't the least bit interested in getting to the truth of the matter about Jesus' authority. They were only interested in getting rid of this threat to their own authority and their public position. Well, Jesus' response to this supposed dilemma is absolutely brilliant. Not for the first time, Jesus answers a question put to him with another question. His intention wasn't at all to dodge their question, but rather to expose the faulty assumption behind it. And more than that, to expose the spiritually corrupt hearts of those who were trying to trap him with it. Verse 3. I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Well, what was supposed to be a dilemma for Jesus has been turned into a dilemma for his opponents. You see, they knew that the consensus on the streets of Jerusalem was that John the Baptist was indeed a true prophet, sent by God in the line of the Old Testament prophets. That's what people thought. And yet John himself had testified very clearly that Jesus was the Messiah, God's promised saviour. So you see, whatever answer they gave to Jesus' question, they would lose. On the one hand, if they said 
that yes, uh, John's ministry was divinely approved, then they'd have to admit that Jesus did have God's authority after all, because he's the Messiah. On the other hand, if they said that John's ministry wasn't from God, then they would face severe public disapproval. And in those days, that meant more than some strongly worded letters posted to your head office. It involved hard objects being thrown at you. Well, the men who tried to trap Jesus had been caught in a trap themselves. So what did they do? Well, they took the coward's way out. They pleaded ignorance. Verse 7. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. They might have escaped a stoning, but they hadn't escaped unscathed. They had wanted to discredit Jesus, but now it was their credibility that had taken a serious hit. You see, they were supposed to be the religious experts of the day, to whom the public looked for answers. If you wanted to answer to a religious question, these were the men to go to. But now, apparently, they didn't know what everyone else knew, that John the Baptist was a prophet. Some experts they were. The clash between Jesus and his opponents lasted only minutes. But there's no doubt at all who came out on top. It was obvious to the crowds which side had the more credible claim to speak and act with God's authority. By exposing their hypocrisy and their duplicity, Jesus had shown that his opponents had never deserved a direct answer to their question in the first place. They weren't really interested in the truth about God's authority. They were only concerned about threats to their own authority. They portrayed themselves as men of God, but when push came to shove, they cared more about public opinion and their own safety than about being open to what God was doing in their very midst. By opposing Jesus in such a self-serving way, they had, in effect, denied God's authority and shown themselves to be enemies of God. It's easy, I think, to smile at the way that Jesus so deftly puts his opponents in their place. It's satisfying to read. But we need to pause and ask ourselves whether sometimes we have more in common with Jesus' opponents than we do with Jesus. As Christians, we claim to acknowledge God's authority over our own lives, our whole lives. We claim to live by God's word. We say that we want to know and do God's will. But when the rubber hits the road, do we really care more about God's authority over our lives than our own comfort and what other people will think of us? Just consider for a moment any significant issue that you've had to deal with recently or perhaps will have to deal with soon. A career choice, a crisis in the office or in the home, a decision in your church ministry, a relationship conflict. Was your first question, what would God want me to do here? Or was it, what will make life simplest for me? Or, what will make me look good here? When we look for guidance on issues like these, whose authority do we honour the most? Do we look first to God's word, or to the opinions 
of our peers? These are uncomfortable questions, I think. But we need to honestly examine our hearts in these matters so that we don't end up denying God's authority and acting like God's enemies. Well, let's consider, finally, the third mark of the enemies of God. Despising God's Son. Several times in Luke's Gospel now, uh, we see that Jesus knew the hearts of the people that he encountered. He could see this. He could perceive people's deepest thoughts and desires. He knew what was going on inside them. And in this final section of our passage, we see that he knows now what is in the hearts of his opponents. He knows that they're full of hatred and they want to kill him. And so he tells a parable to show that he knows it. And to warn them in the most shocking terms about where they're headed on their current course. Now what's interesting about this parable, the parable of the tenants as it's called, is that it is one of the few allegorical parables that Jesus told. Um, An allegory, uh, just to refresh your memories, is a story where many of the characters and the events within the story are meant to represent characters and events in actual history. as a correspondence between elements in the story. A modern example of an allegory would be the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Aslan is Christ, the White Witch represents Satan, and so on. For some of you, the light is going on for the first time, right? Well, most of Jesus' parables aren't allegorical. They're they're not allegories. Uh, Most of them just make one point, and we shouldn't think that everything in the parable has to correspond to something. That's not how they work. But this parable is one of the exceptions. And so to understand it, we need to get a handle on what the different elements in it represent. Let's go through them. There's the owner, the vineyard, the tenants, the servants the son of the owner, and the others mentioned in verse 16. So let's go through them. The owner is, pretty obviously, God. You don't need a PhD in biblical interpretation to figure that out. In fact, it probably helps not to have a PhD in biblical interpretation because you come up with some wacky idea that's completely wrong. So the owner is God, but what about the vineyard and the tenants to whom it has been rented? Well, some commentators argue that the vineyard is the nation of Israel and the tenants are the leaders of Israel. That's what they think. And they point out that Jesus here seems to draw on imagery that's in, uh, found in Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament where uh, Isaiah speaks of Israel being represented as a, a vineyard that God lovingly cares for, but this vineyard uh, produces bad fruit. But here's the problem with that interpretation applied to this parable. It wasn't just the leaders of Israel who rejected Jesus. In the end, it was the whole nation. As we'll discover in the weeks leading up to Easter as we finish our sermon series. The very same crowds of people who welcomed Jesus when he arrived in Jerusalem only days later would shout, crucify him, crucify him. So, I have to agree with the other commentators who say that it's better to see the vineyard here as God's kingdom, God's 
kingdom. God's kingdom we could define as the state in which God's people live under God's righteous rule and protection and they receive all of the blessings that go with uh, the wonderful promise that runs all the way through the Old Testament. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's the kingdom of God. And so the vineyard is God's kingdom with all his promises of blessing and therefore the tenants are the nation of Israel who live within those promises in the Old Testament. The the period that stretches from the first promises made to Abraham right through to the birth of Jesus and later the ministry of John the Baptist. Well then, what about the servants? The servants in the parable. The servants are the Old Testament prophets sent by God to warn Israel over and over again to return to God's ways. But prophets who were uh, frequently rejected and persecuted instead. We saw, of course, a prime example of this in our sermon series last year in the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. Who then is the son of the vineyard owner? Well, Jesus, of course. Of course. It just doesn't make sense to read the parable any other way. Jesus uh, deliberately told this story to people who were plotting to kill him, even though he had been sent by God. God's chosen people had persistently rejected God's prophets and now they were going to commit the ultimate act of treachery by killing the ultimate messenger, God's own son. You know, it's important to understand that Jesus wanted the people listening to this parable to realize how incredibly foolish the tenants were. They had thrown out the owner's son and murdered him in the hope that the ownership of the vineyard would fall to them. But did they really think that their plan would work? Did they really think that the owner would just let it pass? Of course not. And the conclusion of the story is therefore both predictable and tragic. The owner of the vineyard comes and kills the tenants and gives it over to others. Who are these others? The Gentiles. The other nations of the world. In Matthew's version of the parable, Matthew's Gospel, Jesus makes this very explicit. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Just as a a side note here, Uh, It's interesting to see how the Apostle Paul later picks up and extends this story of the history of God's people in his image of the olive tree in Romans chapter 11. If you have time later today, I recommend you take a look at Romans 11 and see how it connects with this parable and in effect completes the story of God's salvation plan in history. But That's something for you to look at. I'm not going to go into that now. But back to our parable. Now that we've identified all the pieces of the puzzle, what's the overall picture? Here's the message of the parable. First, Jesus himself is God's son. Jesus is God's son. That is the answer to the earlier question about where Jesus' authority comes from. Jesus has God's authority because he is none other than God's son. Second, uh, God has been incredibly patient with his people, wicked though they are. 
He sent one servant after another to warn them, but they've rejected all the warnings. And now he has gone so far as to send his own beloved son to warn them to turn away from their wickedness and to get right with him. But they won't do it. They won't do it. Instead, the people will foolishly reject God's Son as well. They'll not only reject him, they'll kill him. But of course, they can't get away with it. The people will be rightly judged for this final act of treachery. They will pay a very heavy price. Well, Jesus' audience got the point. They understood the parable and they were utterly horrified at the implications. Verse 16, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. This couldn't possibly happen to them, to God's chosen people. And yet Jesus insists that it will happen. And he quotes from one of the Psalms, Psalm 118, to prove it. Verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Uh, The NIV footnote here, if you're using an NIV, actually gives the better translation here with the word cornerstone than capstone. It should be cornerstone, really. Uh, If you want all the reasons for that, I'll be happy to give you them afterwards, but uh, for the sake of time, you'll just have to take my word for it. But the cornerstone, you see, was a large slab of stone placed at the base of adjoining walls to give the whole building stability. That was the cornerstone. And rather than being dispensable, it was utterly essential and foundational to the whole building. And so Jesus here identifies himself as the stone that was rejected, but which turns out to be at the very foundation of God's plans for the salvation of a sinful world. What a tragic mistake to make then. To throw out the central foundation stone. And what terrible consequences for those who reject that stone. Most scholars believe that in verse 18, Jesus is alluding to two striking prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that would have in fact been very uh, familiar to his audience who were schooled in the Old Testament. One is a passage in Isaiah which speaks about a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken. That's in Isaiah 8. And the other reference seems to be the interpretation of a dream given to the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. A dream which predicted God's response to the rebellious kingdoms of the world. This is what it says. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. In effect, Jesus was saying here, I am the fulfillment of those prophecies. So be warned. The consequences for those who reject me will be dreadful. 
Those who reject, those who despise God's Son, reveal themselves to be God's enemies and must suffer the consequences. We're heading now to the climax of Luke's Gospel. And what we find in these final chapters is what we've seen over and over again throughout this book. Jesus is divisive. Jesus is divisive. People are divided over his identity and over his authority. But given what he has said and what he has done, there's just no place for indifference. Either you accept his claim to be the Son of God or you reject him as a fraud. And either way, there are eternal consequences. And so there can be nothing more important than making sure that you stand on the right side of that division. Well, it's time to draw things to a conclusion. I discovered this week that a film is planned for release later this year about the Stone of Destiny. The Stone of Destiny. And if you're not familiar with Scottish history, and most of you will be, I expect, the Stone of Destiny, uh, also known as the Stone of Schoon, or the Coronation Stone, is a block of red sandstone which now lives in Edinburgh Castle, not far from us now. Apparently it dates back to the 9th century, when it was used as a seat by the monarchs of Scotland during their coronation ceremonies. According to conventional history, the stone was captured in 1296 by King Edward I of England as spoils of war. Boo, boo. Uh, And placed in Westminster Abbey, uh, where it remained until the middle of the 20th century, despite several attempts to have it uh, returned to Scotland peaceably. Well, the film that I just mentioned, that I learned about this week, promises to tell the story of four Scottish students who on uh, Christmas Day in 1950 lifted the stone from Westminster Abbey and attempted to drive it back to Scotland hidden in a car boot. This stone of destiny was considered so important to the Scottish people that enormous efforts were then made to hide its whereabouts from the British government. Now, I don't want to offend any nationalists this morning, far from it, but at the end of the day, the stone of destiny is just a chunk of rock. It doesn't have any magical or supernatural power, and I dare say the future of the Scottish people doesn't depend at all on where that chunk of rock sits. So it's slightly bewildering to think that some people would go to such great lengths to make sure that it's put in a certain place. The fact is that there's another stone of destiny that is infinitely more important and it matters a great deal what place it has or what place he has. Jesus was the stone the builders rejected but he turned out to be the cornerstone, the foundation stone and how you and I respond to that stone whether we reject him or embrace him, really will determine our destiny. And so I simply ask, as I close, what is your response to the real stone of destiny? What place does Jesus hold in your life?
The answer to that question will ultimately reveal whose side you are on. Whether you are for God or against God. Is Jesus your foundation stone? Does he hold the central place in your life? Are you building your life on him? Are you depending on him alone to put you right with God? Or is Jesus a stumbling stone to you? Has God spoken to you this morning, perhaps for the first time, and shown you that you've been living like an enemy of God? Don't make the same mistake as those people who ended up shouting, crucify him, crucify him. On this Thinking Sunday, I can't imagine that there is anything more important for us to think about. Let's pray.